Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And I thank you very much for that kind, though perhaps slightly exaggerated introduction. (laughs) And great to have you with us. Welcome to the December 20th edition of Lifeline. That means about four more shopping days till Christmas. Um, Not that I want to remind you about the big crowds in the stores, but I do want to remind you that um, as we think about the holiday decorating and the shopping and the family gathering together and all that good stuff, that the most important focus for all of us is to remember the real reason for the season. And I pray this year in your home, your family will be surrounded by um, good food, lots of love, and most importantly, um, the delight of celebrating this tremendous gift to mankind as we remember the uh, Christ child born in a manger this time of year. All right, let's get down to cases because we got a lot of ground to cover tonight. And if I said to you, wow, look at the news, you get the sense that there's an awful lot of churning going on. You know, the Bible, from a prophetic standpoint, talks about wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes in diverse places. We've certainly, all of that has come to fruition. And longtime listeners to the program might recall conversations on this very program going way back into the 1990s, talking about many such events in the context of the end times, and more specifically, Christ's second coming. You might even recall, this will really date you, um, our debates between Harold Camping and Dr. John Walvoord of Dallas Theological Seminary related to um, the false assumption that Christ was going to return in 1994. And while it might be problematic to set dates, we do know this, that the word is very clear, whether you're reading in Old Testament prophecy in Daniel, Ezekiel, or New Testament in the book of Revelations, indeed, Christ is going to return. The question is, when? And when the Bible tells us to occupy until he returns, what exactly does that mean? Well, to pull back the curtain on these topics, we've got a very special guest joining us. He is certainly no stranger to KFAX listeners as the speaker on the Pathway to Victory broadcast, heard multiple times daily here on KFAX. He is both the senior pastor of the 15,000-member plus First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, and a very prolific writer pleased to join on the program program today, Dr. Robert Jeffress. Dr. Jeffress, Merry Christmas to you. Welcome. Merry Christmas, Craig. Thanks for having me. You know, down through the years, we've talked about a number of your books. You are indeed a very prolific writer with more than 30 books uh, to your credit, and all of them, of course, down through the years on varied theological topics. But I'm curious, in particular, why this topic of end times in the book called Are We Living in the End Times, and why now? Well, what uh, motivated this book was what happened 12 weeks ago, October 7th, when Hamas invaded Israel and committed acts that can't even be spoken about. And we started getting flooded with questions, Craig. Is this the beginning of the end? And, uh, you know, uh, most books from inception till publication take about 18 months to do. We did it in four weeks, presented this book, Are We Living in the End Times? And uh, I think, again, as you said in the introduction, we've had wars and rumors of wars and civil unrest and plagues. That's been a part of the uh, world uh, for thousands of years. But Jesus said in Matthew 24 to 25, 
when you see these things intensifying in frequency and uh, intensity, uh, that's when you know the end is near. And so uh, I wrote this book, Are We Living in the End Times, to answer seven questions uh, that people have about the future. Uh, what are the end times in the Bible? How do we know if we're in the end times? What is Israel's role in the end times? And most importantly, how do I prepare for the end times? By the way, 40% of Americans believe we're living in the end times right now. That's Christians and non-Christians. 40% of Gen Zers are preparing a doomsday scenario, making sure they have food and other necessities stocked up. So there is this sense in the world today that this can't go on forever. In, in your viewpoint, as you have studied the eschatology behind all of this, what makes this different? And I, and I alluded to, uh, you know, prognosticators like Harold Camping that made various false predictions, you know, completely ignoring uh, Matthew twenty four thirty six. And I want to be clear for listeners that in Dr. Robert Jeffress's new book, Are We Living in the End Times? This is not about predictive date setting, not at all, even as, as that passage of Scripture reminds us, not even the sun knows the day or the hour. But I'm curious in your viewpoint, you've been a believer for many, many years like myself, what is different about what we're seeing coming together today versus, say, 40 years ago when we were looking at similar issues going on in the Middle East and even then concerns about, well, could the prophecies in Daniel regarding Gog and Magog coming down upon Israel be coming to fruition? What's different this time? Well, look, you're right. I mean, people have been predicting these things for a long time. But I think, uh, you know, in this last invasion of uh, Hamas of Israel, we all know Iran was behind it, and we're seeing superpowers uh, starting to pick sides and threaten involvement. And, you know, uh, for hundreds of years, people wondered why in the world would the world forces assemble on the plain of Megiddo, Armageddon in Israel, a country no bigger than New Jersey? I mean, what's going to cause the world forces to come together? Well, I think we've seen in this last and latest example how a regional conflict could quickly escalate into a worldwide conflict. And to answer the question, why is it different this time? Two words, nuclear weapons. I mean, we're looking at a nuclear-armed China, probably a nuclear-armed Iran, Russia. Remember um, that uh, only two atomic bombs ever dropped were by the United States on Japan. That was in 1945. In 1948 is when Israel regathered and was recognized as a state. And I think the spread of nuclear weapons is what makes this nearer than it's ever been before. Folks are thinking about their Christmas gift giving. This is a great book, not only to help set the record straight for people that have a lot of misconceptions about what the end times are, when they're coming, the circumstances, the, a lot of false teachings out there, as I alluded to earlier. But but there's also a sense of this, I think, giving maybe some urgency, Dr. Jeffers, to believers that as we understand this in the context of end times, while it's always an urgent sense of wanting to share the good news of the gospel with those that are outside of the bonds of Christ. Uh, this perhaps kind of, um, how should we say, uh, as we look at the news through the filter or the lens of Scripture, really gives a sense, I think, of urgency in terms of sharing the word. Would you agree? I, I would agree. And the whole point is, since no man knows the day or hour, Jesus is saying we better be ready at all times. I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, 
uh, years ago when I started working with Fox News, one of my earliest friends was Alan Combs, the late Alan Combs, oh, yes. the resident liberal at Fox News. But even though he was Jewish, he always gave me an opportunity to share the gospel on his program. And one night he said, Pastor Jeffers, do you think you'll be alive to see Jesus return one day? And I said, I don't know, Alan, but it really doesn't make any difference. He said, what do you mean it doesn't make any difference? I said, well, I'm 58 years old, and I know in the next 30 years, one of two things is probably going to happen. Either he's coming or I'm going, but the end is near for me, and it is for better be ready. Wow, that really, I think, puts it in context for all of us, and and, and timely, too, given that we celebrate, of course, Christ's initial coming during this time of year, and to make sure that our heart is right before the Lord as we prepare for the second coming, and and perhaps take this as a guidebook to help us not only better understand the eschatology of all of this, but then, too, to better understand what, what some of the nuances are, particularly as it relates to that sense of occupying until he returns. And, and, and maybe, I know time is tight for us tonight here, Dr. Jefferson, I appreciate you carving some time out of your schedule particularly this time of year, to join us. But maybe you can speak to that. When, when, when the Scripture exhorts us to occupy until he returns, what exactly is it telling the believer, particularly in the context of a book like Are We Living in the End Times? Well, I think it's telling us, first of all, we need to be ready to meet Jesus when he comes. And this book would be a great book to give a non-Christian who's interested in current events because the gospel's clearly presented. And the most important thing to do is make sure we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Uh, faultless to stand before the throne dressed in his righteousness alone. But I think we're to do more than just be squatters as Christians. We are to go out and win as many people to Christ as quickly as we can. And you know, Craig, I would just encourage people, remember First Peter 3.15, be ready to give a defense to anybody who asks you for the hope that is within you. Not the discouragement, not the anger, but the hope. We ought to be most hopeful as Christians because we know how the story ends and it ends well for those who know Jesus Christ. Amen. As we're close up against uh, Christmas, of course, just um, a week from a couple of days ago, uh, the folks want to order a copy of the book. Um, best places through the uh, uh, the website. Well, I would say go right now to Amazon.com. For the last three weeks, this has been the number one new release on Amazon of Bible prophecy books. And again, it's called Are We Living in the End Times? All right. Good advice there. And generally, if you want to get information about uh, Dr. Jeffress's broadcast ministry, Pathway to Victory, you can check him out online at PTV. Think Pathway to Victory, ptv.org. And as Dr. Jeffress suggests, time being tight, this is a great gift for anybody that's interested in the end times or understanding better about uh, eschatology, Christ's return, and, and most importantly, trying to make sense out of what's going on in the news and what the Bible has to say about it today. The book again called Are We Living in the End Times? Newly released by Baker Books and available through Amazon.com or again through um, the ministry website for ptv.org. That's ptv. Again, think pathway to victory.org. Dr. Robert Jeffers, thank you so much, Pastor, for carving some time out. We'll look forward to visiting with you again soon and Merry Christmas to you and yours. Merry Christmas to you, Craig. Thanks so much. Take care now. There's Dr. Robert Jeffress, again, speaker on Pathway to Victory, heard right here in the San Francisco Bay Area on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And when you think about 
your relationship with others. So much of how we view and see and relate and interconnect with others is based on the way that we view, relate, and understand God. And so much of the way we do that is based on our thought process, the way we we mentally construct our image of God, who we perceive him to be. And to a large effect, as my guest asserts tonight, the way we view God also has a profound impact on our physical, mental, and obviously spiritual health. How do we go about how do we go about better understanding the relationship between the way we view God or think of God and the way it impacts so many parts of our life? Well, he tackles this very topic inside the pages of a new book called The God-Shaped Brain. Now, Dr. Tim Jennings is a board-certified Christian psychiatrist and master psycho pharmacologist, voted one of America's top psychiatrists by Consumer Research Council for 2008, 10, and 11. And he is on the board of Southern Pacific Association and is in private practice in Tennessee. Joins us now to talk about the findings inside the pages of this new work, The God-Shaped Brain. And Dr. Jennings, a delight to have you on the program. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. Ironically, Scripture says so much about this topic, and we tend to kind of just kind of gloss over it, don't we? I mean, in the, in the sense that we're told about bringing our thoughts into captivity. Um, we, we understand a lot about uh, the uh, the idea that we see, for example, in Philippians 4, 8, that whatever the things that we think about. And so if that's true in so many ways, why is it that seemingly a lot of us, maybe not all, but, but many within the church, kind of had pretty significantly faulty thinking about God? Yeah, and, and that's a great point. I, I think the point you're making is, is great on several levels. One, science, brain science, is actually affirming uh, things that the Bible has said for thousands of years. And that's exciting to be able to, to look at the brain science, the brain research, and say, wow, the Bible was right 2,000 years ago. Without any CAT scans or MRIs or, or neurobiology, it was still right. Um, so why do people struggle with distorted ideas? Um, well, I think it has to do a lot with uh, innocent and inadvertent ideas that slowly uh, encroach over time as we take our human ideas and put them back on the Bible rather than letting the Bible reveal itself to us. We hear things uh, such as um, folks that are out there in the world of, uh, of motivational speakers that talk about mind over matter, things of this sort. I mean, most definitely, science has found a very strong connection between the way we think or view things and our health, hasn't it? Absolutely, and everybody has probably heard of something called the placebo effect, and the idea that uh, if you get a uh, sugar pill but you believe it's a pain pill, that uh, you not only get pain relief, but brain science has now shown that if you believe you're getting a pain pill, your brain will actually release uh, chemicals called endorphins and keflins, which are brain-produced opiates or painkillers. You actually get physiological brain change if you believe you're getting a pain pill. But if you are told you're getting a sugar pill and uh, and uh, no longer believe you're getting a pain pill, the brain does not release the endorphins and enkephalins so you don't get the pain relief. So something as simple as that, uh, when we have a change in belief about what's happening, there's physiological consequences that are different 
depending on what we believe. Medical science certainly understands this. I mean, for example, my mother, who's been a cancer patient for almost a decade now, when she was first under treatment by her oncologist, uh, encouraged her that very much how she viewed this particular battle with cancer, what her anticipated desire was in terms of the outcome, and her her mental viewpoint on the ability to, to get through all of this, meaning the chemotherapy, the surgery, so on and so forth, would play a major role on whether or not she was going to be able to beat this disease or not. And I'm pleased to report that in the decade, uh, her, her mental viewpoint on all of this has been very good, very positive, and she's managed to um, be into full remission four times over in the last decade. So having said that, clearly those of you in the, the medical arena have seen a connection between the impact that our thinking has on our physical well-being, why is it that we've kind of perhaps within the church lost the understanding or maybe failed to in the first place recognize the understanding that there's also a very strong impact between our relationship with Christ or the viewpoints that we have on God uh, based on maybe the, the impressions that we had as a child and the way we think of God? You know, I think something happened in uh, uh, several hundred years after Christ where the idea of God being the builder, creator who constructed his universe to operate on design parameters or protocols, laws of health, laws of gravity, these these construction protocols that nature operates on being God's law, that instead an idea that God was like a, a Roman emperor, a dictator, imposing arbitrary law, human-type law, really came into the uh, Christian thought process and seeing changed, and you, you can see that history where in the early church was very self-sacrificial, but then suddenly the church went on the crusades, and we had the Inquisition, and we would burn people at the stakes uh, for not believing the way. So methodology changed because this construct of God's law changed from protocols upon which life was built to imposed rules you better keep or else. Mm. And so with all of this, it has created, uh, to many degrees, passed down through the millennia, uh, in some camps, a distorted God construct, hasn't it, that that as a result has subsequently significantly impacted everything from our our physical well-being, mental well-being, as we mentioned a moment ago, to even our spiritual health as well as relationships? Absolutely. And what's uh, what's, uh, striking is that most Christians wouldn't um, dispute this idea if they're talking about a non-Christian. Somebody in a Wiccan camp worshiping, you know, white witchcraft, and these they would say, "Oh, yeah, that's going to be that." What's striking, though, is that within Christianity, within any any individual church group, you can go into a group of Christians, and you can find some that worship a God of love, who's benevolent and kind, as Jesus revealed him. But you can find some that are worshiping an authoritarian, or punitive, or distant, or punishing God, and and all within Christianity. And what we discovered is that viewpoint within the same religion actually has a different impact on how your brain functions and, and, and actually structurally changes the brain and ultimately your physical health. Right. From your position as a physician, where did you begin research into this arena to begin sort of connecting the dots, so to speak, uh, of the connection between whether or not we have a healthy or a faulty and distorted, thus, uh, God construct in our minds, and then the ultimate impact that it has on not only, in, in many respects, I guess, self-defeating behaviors and toxic relationships, but, but the aspects in which it touches every part of life? Well, I think it really started for me in my residency. When I started my psychiatric residency, um, I guess more than 20 years ago now, I um, 
was challenged by my faculty who by and large didn't believe in God and kind of looked like historic psychiatrists often have down on those who do look on God as somehow being un- do believe in God as somehow being unenlightened in some way and so they really challenged us and we had to read the theorists like Freud and Jung and Adler and, and many of the, the theorists who don't have a great God concept and uh, these ideas were very challenging for me and I had the premise that okay I believe God is real if he is real then the evidence should support that. His, his, we should be able to find evidences that, that sustain God's word and not have to simply say, well, I believe and I'm, I'm just not going to look at any, any evidence or facts. And, uh, and so I started research 20 years ago into this to, to identify the protocols, the evidences that were there. And it's been fantastic and, and rewarding and, and validating to, to discover that the Christian viewpoint is much more um, scientific, much more evidence-based, much more reliable than a viewpoint that excludes God. Have you had a chance to see this play out in the um, in the patient relationship in the sense that you've been able to notice differences in a patient's ability to respond to treatment, uh, for example, uh, take two identical, generally identical sets of, of uh, symptoms and uh, patients of about the same health condition, age, weight, etc., etc., find one who has a strong, positive viewpoint on God and on life, and then one who does not, and then be able to play this out at all in any even remotely scientific fashion to see the end results of, of the treatment process for those patients? Well, it, it, yes, and it even is a little more subtle than you would suggest, believe in God or not believe in God. How about one that believes in a God of love, and who is self-sacrificial and beneficent, and one who believes in a judgmental, punishing God, and one believes God is, is cares for them and wants to deliver them, and one believes God is actually doing this to them. Mm. See, that is even more striking. When people, and I have had patients come see me, and I talk about a young lady in the very beginning of my book who was quite depressed and distraught because she wasn't able to have children, and she was distraught because her pastor told her it was her fault because when she was an adolescent, she had gotten pregnant, had an abortion, and her pastor told her God was punishing her, and she would never be able to have children because of that. Mm. So this viewpoint of an angry, chastising God that is punishing her for past sins or mistakes. I mean, my goodness, you can see the manner in which that could impact every level of one's relationship with Christ and ultimately the way you, your, your belief system works. Yes, and, and, and neurobiologically when you have those beliefs, it actually fires the brain's fear circuitry called the amygdala, which causes in your body the activation of your immune system, which kicks up inflammatory factors, and this chronic activation, if this continues, actually results in uh, increasing risk of obesity, diabetes, high cholesterol, heart attacks, strokes. It reacts on the brain, increasing your risk of depression. I mean, this is very damaging to the to the physiology to have chronic fear and anxiety going. Whereas if you come back to a knowledge of God as a God of love, when we fire the brain's love circuits, which is called the interfacing of the cortex, they actually calm or shut down the fear circuitry. So just as the Bible teaches, perfect love casts out all fear. Neurobiologically, that's actually true. Mm, I want to go deeper on this, Doctor. You've just piqued my curiosity. Curiosity here. We see a connection between anxiety and fear, the way the patient reacts. And we all know what that's like. I mean, you're, you're dealing with a situation maybe in your financial life or at home or at work, and you're filled with fear and anxiety, and you're on edge constantly, and the bile's just right up there. And, and, and it seems like everything that you touch and come in contact with goes wrong. 
and it doesn't go your way and it doesn't feel good and you just don't you just have that tremendously unsettling feeling about everything wonder how much of that can directly be correlated to your viewpoint or understanding of very God himself. We're exploring that equation, a look at the God-shaped brain, how changing your view of God transforms your life, written by Dr. Timothy Jennings. He's with us tonight. We're going to get back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Timothy Jennings with us tonight. A look at the God-shaped brain. You know, it's interesting because we, we gave a mental assent to this around the around the periphery. For example, um, we talk about Philippians 4.8, a passage of scripture that we are all very, very familiar with. Uh, you know, finally, brothers, whatever things are true and whatever things are honest and just and pure, holy, lovely, so on and so forth, if they be of good report, any virtue, if they be any praise, think on these things. Why is God telling us to do that? Why are we encouraged to, to meditate um, on the things of the Lord? Why are we told to bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ or put on the mind of Christ. Ironically, Dr. Jennings, we talk a lot about this issue of thoughts and the way we view things mentally, and yet when it comes to playing this out in reality, we've not seen perhaps the, or at least been willing to acknowledge that strong connection between how we view God or think of God and the way that plays out in every aspect of life, physically, mentally, spiritually. Yeah, and I think part of the reason for that is somehow these ideas is entered into much of religion and Christianity that what happens in church is about your future eternal security. It's like it's like future life insurance. And so you get things taken care of for the future need by going through the proper rituals or accepting Jesus, but it doesn't actually have impact on our life today. Rather than realizing what we've shown in the book is that God has actually constructed his universe to operate in certain ways. And living in harmony with his design for life actually, as Christ said, that we might have life and have it more abundantly now. And there actually is a real-life concept to living in harmony with God's design or deviating from that design that we experience here now. Mm. Let's talk a bit about some of the issues related to fear. We touched on this just before the break. Um, we know that there are certain chemicals that are produced in the brain when we are subject to circumstances or situations that either uh, increase anxiety in us or create a sense of fear in us, uh, that kind of a fight-flight reaction. If we view God with a sense of fear and trepidation, does that also produce that, that kind of chemical reaction in the brain? Absolutely. And, I, and this is what we've shown in, in the, in the, uh, from the science and from the, in the book, is that this chronic fear activation is actually antagonistic to love. Love and fear are inversely proportional. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hit because they were afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. And so there's actually, neurobiologically, there's this tension that sets itself up. The part of the brain where you experience, and when I use the word love, I'm, I'm uh, describing compassion, altruistic regard, self-sacrifice, beneficence. We're not talking erotic or romantic love. We're talking that, that brotherly love that one uh, loves so much they give their life for a friend, that kind of love. When Christ said, um, you know, uh, greater love is no man, they lay his life down for a friend, this kind of love means I care so much for you that I'll do whatever's for your best interest, including give my life that you might live. Many parents experience this love for their children. If their children are in some danger, they would easily step into that danger to protect their 
child. Well, that's at war with another principle that's driven by fear since Adam's sin that the scientists call survival of the fittest. I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to to protect myself, including, if it comes down to it, kill you that I might live. Love you, love you so much, I'll give my life that you might live. Love myself so much, I'll kill you that I might live. These are antithetical. Love versus fear. Fear drives us to self-protection and exploit and hurt others. Mm. This process then of beginning to recognize the impact that our thinking process, the way we view or react to God, a lot of it, of course, goes back to a childhood. Um, we often hear stories, uh, Dr. Jennings, of individuals, for example, who um, are introduced to the claims of Christ later in life and often struggle with the imagery of God as a benevolent, loving, protective, heavenly Father who would sacrifice his only begotten Son on our our behalf, and we, we some people will reject that just absolutely out of hand because they grew up in a household where there was perhaps an absentee father or a you know drug crazed alcoholic uh, driven abusive father, and so the notion of being able to equate a loving heavenly father who sacrifices his son on behalf of all of us that we might walk in relationship with him is antithetical to their to their manner of thinking. Yes, you're exactly right, and that is a barrier for some people. Our child experiences certainly can put obstacles in the way. And that's, of course, why we are called to be witnesses, uh, the hands and feet, so to speak, uh, God's uh, disciples and agents on earth, to love those individuals. And so they may not have experienced God-like love in their childhood, but they can experience God-like love in their adulthood from others who can still love them in spite of their shortcomings and anger and ultimately lead them to see Christ in us. As we talk about this notion in Scripture of bringing our thoughts into captivity, how can we rewire all of this? Um, you know, this is a great point. And um, I, put, I point out in the book that the way the, the brain is designed is that the, the, there's a protein that is like um, uh, fertilizer for the neurons. It's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Brain-derived means the brain makes it. Neurotrophic factor is simply a factor that makes the neurons grow stronger. So think of it as neuro, uh, fertilizer for the neurons. When it's available, the neurocircuitry that gets it will actually sprout new connections. The brain will make new neurons that are influences of proteins like this. But the, this particular protein doesn't come off of the DNA or isn't produced immediately in this form. It comes in a precursor form called pro-BDNF. And that particular um, protein is actually like weed killer for the neuron. If it binds to the neuron, it will actually uh, kill the dendrite, kill the axon, cause pruning back of the neural circuitry. And so the key issue is if there's a if there's an enzyme available that will cleave this this weed killer into the fertilizer, then the neuron grows stronger. What determines whether you have this enzyme or not? And this is fascinating. It's the activity of the neural circuit itself. If you're firing the neural circuit, using it, it produces this enzyme. So pro-BDNF, the weed killer, is cleaved into the fertilizer and it grows stronger. The circuit grows. But if you're if you're dormant, if you're leaving it inactive, then and not using the circuit, then the enzyme is not produced and the weed killer actually takes over and you start pruning the circuitry back. And so imagine the situation of trying to study a language in high school, maybe Spanish in high school, and you're studying brute force memory, and you keep practicing, you're firing this circuit, this new forming circuit, and this enzyme's produced, and you get more of the fertilizer, and it expands, and you keep doing it, and the circuitry grows. And then one day you graduate, and 20 years go by, and you haven't spoken the language for 20 years, and what happened to your ability and proficiency? It's been pruned back. Well, 
where, where every thought into captivity comes now, let's say um, we have somebody in their imagination imagining certain thoughts, like we can lock a pedophile up in prison so he can't act on the behavior, but can we control the imagination? No. And if you fire those thoughts in your imagination, you're still activating the circuit, you're still producing the enzyme, you're still growing the pedophilic uh, type of thinking stronger, and so the person may come out more recidivist pedophile than they went in if they're not bringing their thoughts into captivity. Hmm. So a lot of this has to do with the way we control and focus our thoughts. And again, that goes back to much of the the instruction that we've received, but sadly have never put it fully into practice within Scripture. So if we have been raised with a fearful viewpoint of God, um, and we know what the brain's reaction is to that, as much as the way we see the way the brain will react to, to violence and the numbing effect, oftentimes, for example, in children that spend hours on end um, viewing violent video games or, or television programs, and after a while it tends to kind of anesthetize them to the, to the reality of what they're really facing. Then mm-hmm. when they are exposed to real significant violence, they're almost uh, nonchalant about it because they've been anesthetized to all of this. So it, if, if then there has been a long process of training, so to speak, the brain to believe that God is someone to be feared and, and as a result um, has, has set up this boundary uh, that prevents us from able to enter into the kind of relationship that God wants with us or uh, the impact that it has on other relationships as we mentioned a moment ago. How do we retrain that process? Yeah, this is, uh, in our book, we've introduced this idea of the um, integrative evidence-based approach. We have to be willing to look at evidence. And we've, and we've identified three threads of evidence that God has provided that when we harmonize all three, we can have a more consistent idea of the truth that God is trying to reveal. And the three threads are Scripture. All Scripture is given by God for inspiration, inspired by God is given for instruction and so forth. Science, it says in Romans one twenty that God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. We look into nature and science and experience, taste and see that the Lord is good. The scripture says, check me out, experience me. And if you separate the three threads, science without the other threads, without Scripture, is vulnerable to going into godless evolutionism. If you have experience without Scripture and science, it's vulnerable to mysticism, particularly Eastern mysticism, which is making huge inroads in America. And then Scripture alone without the other two, I don't know if you know, but the the Christian Encyclopedia currently identifies 34,000 different Christian groups all claiming the Bible supports their view. And so without the other two anchors, we end up in confusion and disagreement and argument. And so bringing all three threads together, we can find a harmonized truth that reveals, and this is what the beauty, and this is what we've shown in the book, is that God is love. And that love, when you come back to a knowledge of God's love, it actually activates healthy brain circuits. It turns off the fear circuits. We have less anxiety, lower heart rates, lower blood pressures, lower uh, cholesterol levels. We have less risk of heart disease. We live longer. We have less risk of dementia. All these things happen when we come back to a knowledge of God. But we hold those other distorted concepts. We actually have more disease and, and we have more disability. There's so much about this business of putting on the mind of Christ and bringing our thoughts into captivity and focusing on him. Now, of course, the big key, if you've been eavesdropping on this conversation, um, as Dr. Janine points out in the book, 
insight doesn't always equal change. You have to take a proactive approach. And I would encourage you today, if you've been struggling with a distorted God construct, um, maybe it's time to put off that old way of thinking um, and, and recognize that beliefs indeed impact uh, our physical, mental, and spiritual health and well-being. And so coming back full circle to meditate on Scripture, to bring our thoughts into captivity, and to, to imply or apply the, the, uh, the core, quite frankly, of what we're taught in Philippians 8, of what to focus on in getting back to God's Word and, and reinventing, so to speak, the way we think of God and ultimately relate to Him uh, is one of the biggest keys to changing your view of God and then transforming your life. The book called The God-Shaped Brain, newly published, by the way, by InterVarsity Press, and you can get information on the web at comeandreason.com. That's comeandreason.com. And our thanks to its author, Dr. Tim. Timothy Jennings for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The Apostle Paul reminds us that we are to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within. Certainly makes sense from a perspective of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, um, if we're in this love relationship with the Lord and He has redeemed us, as we share that good news with others, don't we want to be? Uh, don't we want to be articulate about um, what He's done in our life? and how he can change somebody else's life, too? While certainly that's the desire, I think a lot of people, when it comes to the matter of, of sharing their faith or evangelism, get nervous. They get nervous because oftentimes we are afraid that somebody is going to ask us a question that we can't give an answer for. Oftentimes this goes to the heart of the question as to whether or not we are ready to give that answer for the hope that lies within. A brand new book out that uh, helps give some insight to some of the bigger questions and uh, appropriate answers to same. Written by Mark Middleberg. The book is called The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. And Mark, great to have you on the show tonight. Great to be with you. I have to wonder, we look at some of these questions here, you know, what makes you sure that God exists? How can we trust the Bible? Uh, wasn't Jesus just a good uh, man and teacher? Uh, are, are very common questions, to be sure. And one would think questions that at the base every Christian would feel comfortable in answering. But obviously, a book like yours suggests that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, you know, in a perfect world, I guess we should. But the, the real truth is a lot of us... Uh, grew up with the Christian faith. Our parents taught us as we were young, which is great. But when you're raised kind of on VBS and Sunday school, and this is you know being taught that this is true your whole life, and and if you're mostly around Christians, then later when someone really looks you in the eye and says, "Yeah, but how do you know?" And you know you believe the Bible. It's full of contradictions. It's based on myths. It's you know how can you accept that? Well, a lot of us quite naturally feel intimidated by that because we just haven't prepared ourselves for that. So that's really the spirit of this book is to say, these are the questions we're afraid of. This is based on a national survey we did about a year and a half ago that summer. We asked a thousand Christians, you know, what are the issues that you hope will not come up when you're in a conversation with a non-Christian? And these are the top ten questions that came up. So let's get ready because... If we feel ready, then we're much more 
willing to get into those conversations and much more likely to be used by God. Now, for many years, you served as evangelism director at Willow Creek Community Church there in Chicago. Um, as you spoke with folks that were coming through your program, uh, did there seem to be a commonality um, over intimidation by some of these questions? And I'm wondering how much of that might have gone to, as you suggest, maybe a sense of Christian isolationism where we really don't know the answer to these questions because we've never been asked them. Uh, and then to maybe to a level of just simple biblical illiteracy where a lot of folks are just not that familiar with Scripture enough to feel comfortable in, in, in speaking to some of these questions. Yeah, I, I think that's very true. I think, uh, again, I think sometimes as churches we're a lot better at teaching, especially young people, teaching them what to believe but not why it's true. And so a lot of young people grow up learning the creeds, learning Bible verses, uh, being able to kind of parrot back the right answers. But again, I think in the training, and I'm a real advocate even in Sunday school classes, where we say, okay, let's, let's role play here a little. I used to do this when I was a high school Sunday school teacher. I'd say, for the next half hour, I'm going to be a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, or I'm going to be a strong, you know, kind of atheistic evolutionist, and I'm going to challenge your ideas. And, and at first it freaked the kids out, but then they, they really took to it because they, they realized, well, wait a minute, we have answers to these things. And so I think we just need to really force ourselves to think more and get more ready because truth is on our side. We, we don't have to be afraid of these things, but we do, as, as the verse you quoted, First uh, Peter 3.15, we do need to get prepared. There's a couple of issues here at hand, too, I think. I remember a number of years ago, Norman Geisler was on the program, and we spent some time talking about what at the time was an increase in, in how should I phrase this, a, a debate, really, over whether or not it was necessary as a Christian to believe in a, a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ or whether or not that could have been simply a figurative event. And it was amazing to me the number of people that called into our program that night that felt as if, you know, whether or not it was a literal resurrection or a figurative one really didn't matter if at the core, you know, you kind of got the message. And and it was a, a, a very big eye-opener for me in understanding that there oftentimes is a gulf of ignorance uh, between what we believe and even going down to the core of why we believe it. Do you think that's true? I think it's very true, and I've been in Bible studies with all church people, evangelicals, who didn't believe in the Trinity or who thought they believed in it but would articulate it in a, in a way that was actually cultic. And so, again, I, my, my mission is not to shame all these people. My mission is to say, we just need to do a little more preparation. And let's be honest, we need to do a lot more preparation. And this, Mark, I, I should hasten to add, is not just simply for the sake of more effective outreach and evangelism, but ultimately for deepening of our own walk with Jesus Christ. I mean, it, it would seem to me um, it would be important for every believer to know why they are sure that God exists. Absolutely. I, I think all of these questions first speak to our own confidence and clarity as Christians, especially, again, young people who are going to go away, you know, go away to the university or college and have their faith challenged. And so we've got to equip them in particular, but really all of us. 
And then the second half is then we're going to be much more able to boldly and confidently and clearly articulate the message and explain to our non-Christian friends how they can know that it's true as well. So very much a double-edged sword cutting both ways, both in terms of being able to deepen our own faith walk and understanding and relationship with Jesus Christ, and then secondarily, once having been equipped with that information, being more effective toward giving that, uh, well, as we said earlier, that answer for the hope that lies within. Our conversation today with Mark Middleberg, a look at the questions Christians hope no one will ask. We'll come to some of those questions as our conversation continues right here on KFAX.